Hi, welcome to discussions of music, healing, and consciousness with your hosts, Chris Noble and Bill Prosman. In today's episode, we're talking about how music was used in ancient times, the multiple purposes in which the ancients used music not only to entertain, but of course to heal, to uplift human consciousness, and so much more. We'll be looking at bizarre instruments found in deep antiquity as well as modern times, the weird sounds they produce, how they're built, and the potential functionality of these bizarre, weird instruments. We'll also be examining ancient chants like the Ohm and the amazing effects it has on the human body still to this very day. We'll be discussing these topics and much, much more, as always, in our open conversations here on discussions of music, healing, and consciousness. I think it's great because I'm 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 really pumped to talk about ancient history any time of the day. I love my ancient mysteries, ancient anomalies, history, uh, ancient uh, mysteries of the past. But I think when it comes to music and sound, there's a there's a real misconception. I think people assume that music uh, started off primitive, kind of like how everything we assume in history started off starts off primitive, simple, and then becomes more complex, more evolved in time. And that simply isn't the case with a lot of things in history. And that, and that definitely includes music and sound healing, because if you look, I mean, not even that recently, Bill, you're very much an expert in this area is look at classical music and then look at our pop music now, mm, yes. you know, what is more complex, right? The thing that was 300 years ago is far more complex, right? But then if we go further you, you back, mean like rhythmically and melodically and just all of that, I think in every aspect, really. Um, rhythmically, melodically, I also feel like, I mean, they, they messed around more with the tuning, uh, the concert pitch tunings Yes, yes. back in the day as well. So they're playing with like actual frequency pitch modulation. Um, and then the intention, right. We've talked about this many times, like the intention for those hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago, writing and performing music. I mean, we both know is a lot different than, than sometimes a lot of people these days, the, the, the intention behind the writing and the performing of music now. So let me ask a question because this may lead the conversation a little bit, but um, you're going to be the, you're the one, you're the, you're the one who's going to know the answer, right, Chris? So in the day when music was first ever, whenever that was, what was its purpose? Like the original purpose of sound and rhythm? Right. I mean, definitely not a, there's no specific answer that we could, I think, tangibly all agree on because we simply don't know we, unless we time travel back to, well, when were we first uh, in terms of an- anthropology, well, they'll say we're about 200 to 250,000 years old as a species, right? We've been the okay. exact same physically speaking. We would look identical 250,000 years ago as we do today. Our brain hasn't changed. All of that's the same. So since the inception of the human species, we've been making music because it feels like as long as we've been human, we've been musical to some degree. We seem to have had this genetic makeup that allows us to create art and to create um, rhythm to find kind of meaning and understanding through rhythm and melody. And I, and I would I would guess because I'm not I'm definitely speculating here, but my speculation would be that we use music as communication as a form of. Uh, communication from one person to another before language was even perhaps established. You mean just like person to person or the long distance things like those skulls that they've found in Northern Europe where the, 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 the vocal cavity is so enormous that you, the, the sound that that would have produced could have gone for long distances, like much longer than now. 
Exactly. Right. Like it's to communicate back and forth. Maybe it was to communicate in a more primal way. Uh, if, if there was, um, a threat to scare away the threat, but of course, then there's also to call in people to call in your tribe or people from far away to project your voice as a, you know, like a beacon, right. To yeah. communicate with people. But then when rhythm kind of kicks in, you start to, of course, think of drumming, right. Banging, rocks on trees or vice versa and, and creating some form of, of rhythm and some form of a drum, right. Which then evolves into, you know, animal skins getting stretched over wood, sure. right. Yeah. And dried out and then used as a drum and stuff like that. But almost immediately when that starts to happen, and there's a really phenomenal, interesting branch of research into ancient psychedelics as well, that kind of goes with this, which is they were drumming and they were usually drumming around a fire a lot of the time or in caves, but fire and drumming were very, you know, rhythm and fire and ceremony seem to be very common. And then you have to ask the questions, okay, outside of maybe survival purposes and, and basic communication, what else were they using music for? Right. And, and, and I would say that the first ever shamanic experiences were very likely induced with some form of music, maybe also some uh, local psychedelics that would literally be picked out of the ground, like mushrooms, for example, eaten, and then a trip would happen. And I'm sure, again, we were just as smart as we are today as we were 250,000 years ago. So we would have figured out that if we had an incredible mushroom experience by picking a random mushroom off the ground and having the psychedelic experience, then we would find that same mushroom to induce the same experience. So there's a, you know, Terrence McKenna and there's other researchers who are proposing it's quite a modern new theory that psychedelics played an integral role in the evolution of the human species to bring us into a more civilized species. Uh, and this would have happened in the very beginning when, when people were, you know, uh, drumming and whatnot around fires in a more primitive type of culture. So music goes right there with it. So I would, I would say it's like maybe survival, basic communication, but then the third component would be some form of shamanic experience the early versions of that, at least. That's just so my the, two cents. The spiritual experience would have, mm. would have been valuable. So um, for anyone who's had a psychedelic experience, uh, I haven't had the one on mushrooms. There's a sense of um, being uninhibited, of allowing myself to be out of control in a sense, you know, not so I don't have my hands on all the levers. I'm willing to let myself go into this place. Mm. And the fact that there's music associated with that, to me anyway, says, hey, I've got my music. I can hang on to my music as sort of a solid an anchor, you know, like a, a, a place where I can remember whatever the melody is. Maybe I'm chanting as I'm having this ancient psychedelic experience that the melody is grounding me, reminding me that I'm still here. <laughs> you know, I'm on mm -hmm. Earth, um, even as I have the, the expansion of consciousness. Is that your sense of, of history around this stuff? Or am I just sort of making that up out of whole cloth? Well, we don't know. That's, that's the thing is like, I, I can't say this with any certainty, just as much as like the leading historians can say this because we, we, we have, we have some forms of evidence, but th that evidence is constantly changing. I mean, we're, we're uncovering so much. I mean, at, on the historical side of things, what we have just started to realize is that if we actually look underwater for archaeology, we're going to find way more than when we're looking, well, not way more, but we're going to find a heck of a lot of it underwater because not only, only 10,000, 12,000, well, 12,000 years ago was the end of the last ice age. 
and our sea levels rose by about 200 feet very, very rapidly, very quickly. There was a very rapid melting. Um, Theories are that it was an asteroid impact or a solar flare. But regardless, we have ice core samples from Greenland that we can date. You know, there's incredible drilling that they do and they drill out this ice and you can see lines through the spherical cylindrical piece of ice and you can date and you can also find like so much information of what was going on planet earth at different points in history. So we know through that, that there was a massive cataclysm that happened 12,000 years ago. And so with that in mind, sea levels rose about 200 feet, meaning every coastal city is went underwater. And where do we build all of most of our major cities? right yep. near the water right right the water. so we're looking at almost every major uh, infrastructure and city and piece of con- uh, construction and architecture from perhaps an, an ancient world of humans that we have lost like in atlantis per se and um, that's all underwater so we might find so much more evidence for uh, how the you know how music was used at, at very ancient times it could have been used for crazy things like um, not just healing uh, but also could music and sound could have been used for levitation. I mean, we see if you go onto YouTube and you literally type in acoustic levitation, you can see this happening. It's amazing to see like a little ball of foam get vibrated by two speakers or actually four speakers placed evenly. And the frequencies that they pump are the same. And it's the resonant frequency of this little ball. And all of a sudden this ball is like, boom, pops in the air and starts to levitate. So, I mean, it, who knows what they, what we were using them for. But I'd say at the end of the day, when you kind of dial it back, you made a good point, Bill, which was even in the beginning of it all, what if, like, what if it's just an innate thing for you to hum a melody, a random melody, just to feel good, just to feel safe and secure, you know? Sure. Did, did we probably do that at the beginning? I don't know. Probably, right? I mean, we have this ability to make the sound. I would love to be able to study languages someday and and figure out how all that happened. But we have a fairly evolved um, capability to make language happen, to make sound happen. Um, Clearly, there are birds and stuff who sing, Mm -hmm. and and we are way beyond some of their abilities when it comes to melodic capability and speed and all of that. They're infinitely better at it than we are. But you know, given this ability that we have, um, stuff doesn't evolve unless there's a purpose for it. So, mm. you know, language is relatively recent, I guess, given 12,000 years of history or so. Uh, writing, of course, comes with that. But to be able to sing, and it's fairly basic. You don't have to make any consonant sounds. You can make melodic sounds or just toning sounds without a whole lot of ability. It's, it just seems to me as we're talking here, and, and maybe, again, maybe I'm way off on this, but it's, it's like that crazy movie Stargate, right? There's a universe on each side of the Stargate. It seems to me that music is the Stargate between the physical lived experience and whatever else there is on the other side. I like that. That's really cool. <laughs> and, right? And, and you can get there just by humming a tune. You can change your emotions by humming a tune or even remembering a tune they've figured out now. Like just remembering, um, <laughs> the, I don't know why this came to mind, but the music from 2001, right? The Space Odyssey? Yeah. Uh, what is it? Also Sprach Zarathustra, but that wonderful, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. 
and you just just remembering that gives me the chills. I don't know why. Richard Strauss, right? Mm. There's other things that do that for me too. Um, and I was, as you were talking about making drums and things, we've been making instruments for a long time. And, you know, there are made up instruments these days. People are making instruments that literally just blow my mind. Yeah. Make sounds that are completely spiritual. I mean, what, what are some of your favorites, Bill, instrument wise? <laughs> well, there's a guy who took piano strings, like bass piano strings, and made a frame for them. It takes a lot of tension to hold a string like that in tune, and then amplified that. So imagine that you had like a bass guitar the size of a grand a concert grand piano. I don't know, nine foot long strings, really long strings wow. with pickups, and then modulated that. So you can make this incredible sound out of piano strings that you couldn't hear any other way, you know, just using basic electronics. You know, that's so cool. It'd be like having a grand, uh, an acoustic grand piano uh, with a pedal board. I mean, basically, and and that's not even that far of a made-up instrument. Um, there's all the folks who are sampling instruments. Got a buddy who samples uh, his viola, and puts it through a whole bunch of stuff, and does a lot of looping and things like that. But the sounds that he can get out of a viola are remarkable. They're just remarkable, you know. And yeah, a lot of it is processed, but why not, right? And we've all heard of Tuvan throat singers being able to sing more than one tone at a time and put that in a cavern, you get resonance and then you get overtones and uh, you know, barbershop quartet. So there, there's like these uh, physical made up instruments in addition to the really weird ones that people are making. Huge, enormous drums. Can, can you, what would you do with a 10 foot drum or something like that, right? <laughs> what does that sound like too? <laughs> right, yeah. or, or the big gongs and the bells that they have. I mean, you can see the people just going, oh, if we made it bigger, right? And, and then they go to the bronze casting place, wherever it is in, in ancient history. And say, well, we want to make one that's five times as big as the last one you made. And everybody rolls their eyes. And a year later, they come back with this giant bell, right? So that this, this drive we have to make new sounds and, and invent new ways of making them. And uh, it, it seems like that's part of it too. Like along with language, we started to build things that that made weird sounds, right, happen. <laughs> and and yeah. why not? Why not, right? That's I mean, how instruments are created. A lot of it isn't mainstream, but um, you've seen the pictures of the guy standing on a ladder to play the world's largest saxophone or whatever it is. <laughs> it's like, it. Right? Oh, my God. But the sounds of, um, I don't know, ship engines or whatever, there, there's... There's methods in the madness. We've all seen the tractor video where the tractor is basically the old-fashioned tractor. It's, it's the percussion beat behind the oh, cool. bluegrass band, right? You know, so right. this is something that's been something that we do, I guess, for a long, long time. I mean, people looking for new ways to resonate. What about you? What, what's your favorite weird instrument that you've seen? I mean, I, I love the bass piano string. That that one just that's cool. I love sounds that. So amazing. It's like I, I'm trying to picture that. Yeah, it's the voice of God. <laughs> it really is. Honestly, that's really cool. I I remember going on a really on a rampage many many years ago to look at just utterly bizarre instruments that are out there. I think it was for a film I was working on, and I ended up finding some incredible things. So. One of them was what's it was called a carnex, I think is how you pronounce it. And it's like a battle horn from the Viking days. And so this is a very old instrument. And it was like it, it it's played like a trumpet, 
but only in the sense that it's like it's a brass instrument it's, it's a trumpet type of thing but instead of how most trombones trumpets they're they're like it's a horizontal instrument you put the mouthpiece to your mouth and then you know the the instrument expands outward from there the yeah. carnix has a mouthpiece that goes onto your mouth but then it immediately makes a uh 90 degree angle upwards and then just shoot and then the instrument is just above your head so when you're, you're kind of playing and then like balancing this weird horn well above your head and then it's got this big you know big sort of end to it i guess i don't know my, my terminology with brass instruments that well but anyway was it meant to be a weapon well it was meant to be extremely intimidating because if you youtube this and you'll hear a lot of the high pitch parts of it and it sounds like a ceremonial trumpet but then it can play because it's such a big instrument. If you kind of like play it less melodically and I've heard it played with this weird, like low drone sound. Mm, yeah. It sounds like the gates of hell were opened up. Right. Right. And it's bone chilling. And so they would play this in beginning before a battle would ensue to intimidate their opponents with other intimidation tactics too. Cause I know the Vikings were terrifying. And so I was imagining these Vikings with the sound of this Carnix playing. And I'm like, yep, that's bone chilling. It was perfect for the film I was working on. That's why I found it. But it was, it was a, it was a sound that, like you said, with these piano strings, you're like, what, I've never heard anything like that. Right. And then on the flip side of that, I came across a beautiful instrument that is um, it's like a cylindrical piece of glass that rotates and water is dripped over top of it in a continuous fashion. So there's, it's always lubricated essentially. And yeah. the glass is rotating on its own and you put your hands on it, like to play a piano, except you're playing rotating glass. Oh, like the, the people who's who use crystal glasses of different sizes. Exactly. Sounds very similar to that, but played in a piano setting rather than having a bunch of crystal glasses. And it does sound different too. It has a more, even more angelic, you, you like otherworldly, like it sounds like an alien kind of instrument. Really, right. More than right. Anything, right. Like a, like a real theremin. Yeah. Like a real theremin, like a kind of like very like, what it's like glass singing, right? Like yeah. what, is, what does that even sound like? But it's, it's, I mean, people can YouTube these, these instruments and you can type it in more. Cause I don't even know the name of that thing, but you just type in like, you know, glass resonant instrument cylinder or something, and and you'll find whatever that that thing is, and and so that was like the most angelic, beautiful sounding thing because you have water too, so you're you're incorporating an ele the element of water with your music yeah. and the sound. So, oh my God, it's beautiful, it was stunning. I've got a great affinity for comedic instruments like the Spike Jones trombone or whatever it was called. Sounds like a garden hose. <laughs> And um, everything that Peter Shickley has ever done as PDQ Bach, you know, and the, the concerto for typewriter and orchestra. I mean, there's so much that you can make actually fairly beautiful music with, if you try, at least music for a purpose. Because mm. <laughs> Spike Jones could be beautiful. But um, this drive we have is somehow, um, when it comes to humor anyway, uh, for me transcendent yeah you know because humor is who is it that said humor is a spiritual weapon or something and maybe know. i'm quoting that wrong but you know there's there's like power and humor that doesn't exist any other way and if you're using it for a purpose other than just to make people laugh um 
dare I mention Dave Chappelle and the whole trans thing, but he's trying to teach there. Mm. And, and humor is like the, the way that you get the gates open. Mark Twain, uh, pick any satirist from way back, you know, they yeah. all have this ability to make us laugh. But uh, musical humor does that as well. If you're talking about Tom Lair or whatever, they're using regular instruments for the most part. Victor Borg, remember that Thank guy? Thank you, Victor Borg. I was, there's, there's one guy I was trying to think of, and he's a hilarious piano it's player. Hilarious. Right? But he's a virtuoso, which is so Completely, fun to watch. Yeah, and, and yeah. Um, I mean, pushing the limit in a new way, right? Mm -hmm. With music. And it does give you insight, especially things like, you know, every song sounds like happy birthday, which it doesn't, but he makes it sound like that. That's hilarious. I love that. <laughs> That's really hard my to do. Just went out. To, to, uh... no, my, my headset went out. Keep talking. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's with comedy and music. It's so, uh, it's so amazing. I've done some comedy short films and writing the music for them is sometimes it can be more challenging than writing the music for a scary scene or a sad scene. Um, because you know, how do you make something funny? Like you would think, oh, I'll just put silly instruments. You're like, yeah, but it has to suit the scene, it has to suit the tone of the film. So just because slapstick kind of comedic uh music for Looney Tunes doesn't mean it's gonna work for everything, right? Yeah. And so you have to try to find humor in music. And sometimes it's though it I find a lot of the time it's the articulation of the instrument, like the way you play it is funny rather than the notes itself, sometimes. Yes. You know, like we always know the classic kind of humor sounds with the trumpet like wah, 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 yeah, or whatever like very iconic sounds right but the it's plunger yeah the plunger but it's like it's how it's performed right it's all those like sort of pitch bending and, and making things kind of sound like they're out of tune almost just to create that humor it's funny it sounds silly um so it's amazing again the power that we have of of like what if again bringing it back to when humans were first humans and we were creating music wasn't maybe it was for such a variety of things and we weren't consciously trying to do it for those reasons we just made a silly sound and then our friend looked over and said <laughs> and started to laugh at the silly sound we made and then they made a silly sound and then you just have two humans laughing at each other you know making silly sounds with each other I mean, is that so crazy to think i don't know right like have you ever taken a blade of grass and held it between your thumbs and created a reed that you can blow and make a like a whistling sound yeah definitely <laughs> that for me was such a revelation i don't remember how old i was my parents showed me how to do that but to be able to create an instrument from a blade of grass it's like wow and then of course there's people who can whistle really loud through their teeth or whatever it makes that happen and um i think the variety that must have existed in the ancient world of sounds, like if you could think about an orchestra today or putting together a band of ancient instruments just from what you find lying around in the forest, what would that be like? You know, it's pretty clever to have all this technology and stuff, but if you're talking about, we all know about banging on logs, but what other instruments are available to the 12,000 BCE kind of person who I mean, wanted to make some music? I, I agree, right? And I'll just use as a, a, almost a, um, like a, fantasy pop culture reference with Lord of the Rings and it's not a real life thing, but it, it's a good example of like what could have happened in the past. And I remember uh, in the second film or the second book, when the battle of Helm's deep, you know, there's this huge refuge that yeah. um, the, the Rohirrim go to, to, you know, save their, their people. And so they, they all escape to this place called Helm's deep. And there's this massive um, horn 
that it's like the horn of I, I I know these movies so well anyway the horn of Helm Hammerhand or something and I think it's what it's called and Gimli plays it as the Gandalf and and or whatever uh, Aragorn ride out to meet the orcs and to meet their death so to speak and it's this epic scene but anyway this this horn is probably like three hundred feet long it's played at the top of this tower and the actual end of the horn is at the bottom of the fort and this fort's huge. Yeah. So we're talking like it's a, a, a 300 foot high horn. And I know this isn't a fantasy film, but you got to imagine that why wouldn't stuff like this have likely been built in the past, especially if it was metal. I mean, through time, like that's what gets worn down and also usually melted by other cultures later, thousands of years later. And that's why you don't see it anymore, but it could have very well have existed. Uh, things of that nature. Like you could probably have had, I mean, just imagine, right? With like the types of instruments that were, would have been built in the very, very distant past. Maybe, maybe they're using crystal energy. We've talked about this before with yeah, the, yeah. the energy of crystals. Why couldn't the crystals be powering up some form of crystalline instrument? I mean, how cool would that be? I'm thinking back in the day. So um, Bach came back into my awareness today, but when he was around, some poor schmo had to pump the organ. And if it was a big organ, there'd be a bunch of them actually like doing the bicycle pedal thing somewhere to make the air, to power the pipe organ to, you know, so you could Jeez. hear this whole thing go. And um, so that's sort of mechanical technology, but why not crystals? And why not, you know, we had bellows a long time ago. Why not a bunch of people like super bellowing into a, a mega Karnak or Karnex? Karnex? Right. I don't even know right. how it's pronounced, but it's, yeah. <laughs> you know, and why not? Because, why not? you know, sound is scary. And the bigger the sound you can make, the more intimidating <laughs> you can be. I mean, they, they talk about um, bringing down the walls of Jericho yep. Uh, yep. with sound, with um, yep. with a tremendous sound. Could have been the Ark of the Covenant, could have been a weapon that emitted a frequency or something. I mean, um, who knows? There's lots of speculation there, but it talks about it as sound brought it down. Yeah. Um, and the and the military today uses what's called Caesar technology, same as laser, except it's focused sound. Yep. Uh, this isn't even classified as obviously all like common, like you can research all this stuff online, but I mean, we, we weaponize sound. Um, and we also, I mean, we do it for so many things. I, I, again, I just can't imagine that the, uh, in the distant past, like we had many, many different moments uh, in history where instruments would be used for such a massive variety, you know, of, of things, whether it's warfare or healing, the complete opposite. I'm speculating here completely, but given the fact that as far back as Socrates, anyway, there's actual writing complaining about teenagers and their music. Mm. It seems to me that the evolution of music might have been the evolution of our culture. So everybody is around the fire chanting one note, right? And beating the drum once every time they chant the note. And some mm -hmm. teenager somewhere with their friends are beating the drums twice and chanting two notes. And that's like, Oh my God, that's anathema because all the, all the parents are like, no, no, we can't have that. That's, you know, that's terrible. They're messing it all up. Yeah. And in fact, what they're doing is they're evolving. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know how that works in the modern age, but I mean, seriously, have you heard some of the amazing music that's being made these days? Fantastic. It, it, you know, pop music. Okay. That's fine. But you take it down a layer and even, even in some of the just below the level of pop places, there are people playing like guitar solos that would be equally acceptable in the jazz context as they are in the just below the pop context. Yeah. Like playing completely out and sounding amazing. 
It's like, whoa, that would have never happened in the 60s. And yet here we are, right? Um, so, I mean, people always would, I, I've heard a lot of complaints from people in the past of, oh, you know, music's gotten worse. You know, it's it's not as good as it used to be. And, and I and I, I always kind of laugh at that because I'm like, mm, I, right. I definitely disagree with that. There's always incredible art and music, always, like because we're always we're always creative beings and there's always reasons to create and whether or not it's maybe hitting the mainstream is another, is another. Yeah. But who cares know. about the mainstream? Because it's, it's on the edge, you know, it's like in a third standard deviation where stuff changes first. Right. right? Um, wow. So we really got away from ancient history, but uh, I, I think that you're right about the cyclical thing. Like mm -hmm. we made all this, we made all this civilization and then, Every ocean in the world rose 200 feet and and drowned it all. And now we're building it again, you know, in time, just in time for the next cataclysmic event. <laughs> right. Or or massive evolution where we go to multiple planets and yeah, transcend, yeah. and transcend that comp, that cycle of, of cataclysm. But which uh, of course you know leaves me wondering a little bit because there's no like atmosphere out there in space. How do we do music in a place where vibration? that we can hear uh, doesn't exist. I, I still think, and like, I'm a musician here, so I'm speaking like I, I have, like I'm some scientist here, I, I'm not, but from what I've read and uh, you know accumulated with my knowledge is that we still don't fully understand space first and foremost, right? Like we don't even know what makes 94% of the mass of the entire universe. So exactly, we, yeah, I'm down with we, that. Right, we don't know. So assuming space is, in, is a vacuum and assuming that there's no sound heard in space, now I know that's what astronauts experience when they're around earth and whatnot, but we, you know, is it all the exact same everywhere and in, in the solar system in the galaxy? I don't know. I mean, do we really have experiential data for that? No, we, it's all speculation. Right. So, uh, so music could for, for all we know, travel, for example, we've got that probe that we sent out with, um, uh, who was a part of that? Uh, it was a Viking with the, the gold the, disc on it. Correct. Uh, who did that one? You know, yeah. very famous. One, I, I want to say Carl Sagan. Is that yes, right? Carl Sagan? Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Carl Sagan did that. So, and one of the things they put was, um, you know, um, I think they put the Canadian pianist Glenn Gould on. Yes. Uh, playing Bach. Playing Bach. And, uh, and some other stuff too. I think some old blues and some other, you know, some other genres, but they, they're playing music out on this thing because that's a huge part of what we are. It represents obviously there's other art forms, but in terms of this, um, you know, this probe that it was the easiest thing for them to just have music playing on top of some other, you know, visual diagrams and things like that. And so what's really, really interesting is that then, you know, if they were playing music out on this probe and they knew it wasn't going to go anywhere, then why would they do it? So I think there's, you know, enough scientists that think that that still has its vibration, its sound, it's going to go somewhere. It's going to, you know, like it can still be picked up by another being or entity. Right. Yeah. So I, I think that's part of it. And plus, you know, we, who knows what would happen on other planets playing music, but I have a sneaky suspicion, you know, I could go, I could go into like, I, well, I have a sneaky, I'll just say, I have a sneaky suspicion that other beings, extraterrestrials on other planets are also playing music and have some form of art. I, I just don't think it's a exclusive to human thing. I think it's a, um, when you become a more evolved being like a human, the arts, music, that just becomes a form of expression. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe I, it's know, just... I have to agree with that. Yeah, because communication 
would be an essential for people. I mean, we're not at a place yet where we read each other's minds, but communication in a basic sense is music. Right. And you get feeling like I, I tell people or I tell like, I love when I'm working with film and like directors and stuff, you know, I get to be the music of emotion or, or sorry, I get to be the language of emotion, mm-hmm. you know, and when we're, we're getting dialing back to the beginning of humanity, what's a great way to convey how you feel before you have language, you know, maybe kind of like humming a sad tune, you know, and mixed with your body language, you know, I mean, it sounds silly, but like when, you know, think about this, like when you're in another country and you can't, and let's, let's take out of the equation, Google translate and the wonderful apps we have now for translation, you know, like rewind a couple, like a decade or two, and we didn't have that. And we were traveling around and trying to connect with people, trying to communicate with people. What do you do? You end up using body language is a big one. I find when you don't have, when you don't speak the same language, you end up having to really kind of play charades in a yeah. way. Yeah. So charades becomes, you know, <laughs> number one form of communication. And I would find, I would see this a lot when I was, you know, in places in Africa and, you know, China and, you know, where there's just no way in how these people are going to speak a lake of English. And I was fine, but how am I going to communicate? Well, body language and sound. And when I say sound, I'd be like, I would use my pitch, you know, to convey the emotion. So if I was really I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that over there, that looks really good. Thank you. Yeah. Great. They can't understand the words, but that, yeah, like that kind of frequency, they can kind of understand mixed with my body language. He, Oh, he wants that one right there. Okay, cool. We'll grab him that piece of food or whatever he's asking for. Right. So yes. I mean, or, or even I remember once in France having to communicate with a bakery owner about what kind of sandwich I wanted. And so I ended up, um, I just wasn't in France cause I can speak French, but it was in Spain and I ended up, um, I wanted a chicken sandwich. So I started going, bark, 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 you know, so, <laughs> and he got it. Like, he I mean, it. It, it sounds silly, but you're like, but, but the communication was successful because he understood what, exactly what I meant by that. So well, you, you were able to find a common language that both of you understood. And the chicken. sound of a chicken is a yeah. universal sound. Right. 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 Laughter, so, of course, is another one of those things. Exactly. And, and laughter has its own tone and frequency and kind of almost musicality to it as well. And right? so does crying, keening, you know, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, there's the basics around this stuff would have informed ancient musicians. I'm sure, you know, to be able to convey joy, to be able to convey sorrow, uh, anger, fear, mm. um, pretty, pretty powerful ways of being able to do that. That are pretty basic to, uh, you know, an understanding of civilization. Well, yeah, exactly. Right. Like, basic but here's another really crazy thought is so when you go really further far back into music history and just history in general you've got i remember this in university being taught like the furthest back we can go and kind of let's call it western music is the gregorian chant yeah yeah and gregorian chants for those uh listening is basically it sounds like old church music it's usually mostly sung by men because that was just the, the way it was at that time um but obviously that doesn't matter. It's more the, the form of the music is what's a Gregorian chant, which is like these very long syllables are held for a long time, sometimes like a minute or more. And um, it's got that kind of like core, like, or whatever, you know, like that kind of almost a mystical sort of uh, 
um, you know, uh, vibe to that music, but it's actually gorgeous, beautiful music. If you, uh, if you're curious, definitely YouTube that. But what I think is really interesting about that is then when you go into ancient Indian, um, music and the Vedas and how like languages like Sanskrit is one of the oldest, oldest languages on the planet. You look into that music, which is even older than Gregorian chants. It's probably thousands of years older than that. And not only is the music still very complex, but also has the same effect of the Gregorian chants in the sense of it's very mystical. It's very spiritual. It feels very meditative. Yeah, and and yeah. it kind of alters your state of consciousness when you listen to it. You know, it's got that otherworldly kind of feel to it. And then to add on to that with, with ancient Indian music, they're using Sanskrit. And Sanskrit is a language that was based way more off of tonality and sound. It's the sound of much like ancient Hebrew. It's mm-hmm. the sound of the words that is almost more important than the word itself. Because it's the sound that it creates that is supposed to be a representative of the meaning of it. You know, so it's, it's going far more than just like constructing a language to create meaning. It's going, no, no, no. The language itself, the sound of the language is the meaning. And that's, and that's my very crude understanding of, of Sanskrit. I'm sure much better experts can speak to that, but that's kind of what I've been able to learn about it, which is kind of crazy because it's a language based off of sound and vibration, which is why they still include these ancient Sanskrit mantras in a lot of modern uh, meditations and things like that, because they recognize that this language is not only just because the words, I don't understand Sanskrit. I don't know what they're saying, but the sound of these words is activating. There's something going on there. We're like, Whoa, I mean, I feel different when I listen to Sanskrit. Yes. You know? Yes. So I don't know what's going on there, but it's weird because we go really far back into history and things get more, almost more complex and then mystical and, and have a more spiritual consciousness altering quality to it i think we need to talk about universal melodies someday like the dies irae and some of the sanskrit and the gregorian chant Mm, and mm -hmm. uh, because i'm i know there have been times where i've recognized something like at a really fundamental levels i've never heard the music before but something about it just like i know this like it gets Mm. into you first time i heard ikaros i i felt that and I can't tell you why, and I can't tell you where it's from or anything, but somebody somewhere has done the work on this. And, and we should probably get into that because like you, um, who is it that's the amazing singer that has taken a lot of those Sanskrit melodies and sort of westernized them with, I don't know, backing vocals and sort of chords that normal people would understand rather than being uh, out there. I want to say Ram Das, but I don't think that's it. But he's somebody he's, else. Yeah, he's done some really amazing collaborations, yeah. but there's other people for sure. I, I can't think of names right now, but I know but those, those melodies, there. like the, the melody of the Gregorian chant, like the first time that I heard that outside the university in an actual Catholic church, I was blown away. It's like, wow, okay, I get it now. This is where that melody belongs, right? Mm. And I don't know what they were saying. It was Latin. But the melody somehow fit the environment in a way that was transportive. And, and I think that's the same with the Sanskrit melodies you're talking about. Those sort of fit the need that we feel for, for reaching to the other, you know, finding new depth. It's gotta be that way you know, worldwide in, in musical sort of traditions. And isn't the Chinese language a very musical language and the, the actual pitch that you choose for a given syllable and a given word is very meaningful versus if you'd chosen a different pitch. 
you know, and only people who grew up in China can actually hit those pitches because their ears are sensitive enough to know. So good luck for me ever speaking Chinese, right? But oh, yeah. it's it's so important. What you've said, I think, is just crucial because it's the sound that is the meaning. Yeah. Well, just like we have uh, that, uh, you know, ohm, the sound yeah, of the creation, ohm. the ohm. And if anyone, anyone listening, if you've never... Like, you know, YouTube OM, and I think you print, you can spell it O-H-M, um, but either way, or O-M, either or. And you just type that into YouTube, take a listen to that. But when you actually make that sound, and then if you make it with even one other person or two other people, if you have two other people you make, then the, there's three of you, that's really powerful. And then, of course, the more, the merrier. But do an OM, and, and an OM literally would just be like, OM. Oh, and you just draw out that syllable for as long as you can. As long as you got breath. As long as you and got breath. And start again. <laughs> and then start again, rinse and repeat, just do it again and again and see how you feel after three, five, 10, 15 rounds of that. And I guarantee, I absolutely guarantee you will feel different. You'll feel changed. Your state of consciousness will be altered to some degree. And if you've done it with other people, I would love to see what their reactions are because every time I've done it with people who have never done an own before, and even if they have, it always blows their mind. I mean, it, it's doing something. What? I don't know. I'd love to find out more what it's doing, but I know some of the more profound meditation experiences I've ever had. We started off the experience before meditating with an ohm and it was a group ohm. We would hold hands. I remember very specifically once in South Africa, we went to this beautiful ancient stone circle ruin and yeah, it was amazing. It's called Adam's calendar. Um, just uh, two, two and a half hours out of uh, Johannesburg area. And it's absolutely stunning. And um, anyway, it's an ancient, ancient, ancient site. And it's kind of like a smaller version of Stonehenge. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, we, we knew this was a special spot. I'd been researching this for some time. And before we went in, uh, it was a group of us that were very intentional in being there. And so we, we all held hands and you actually do it, you know, your, I think it's your right hand up and your left hand down to receive and everyone does that so you're all giving and receiving creating a uh, electrical circuit in a way energy circuit that way through everyone holding hands and then you all own together and you don't even have to hit the same note and luckily we had a couple of musical people with us so we actually could hear some harmonies forming nice um, which was really fun but long and the short of it is, is that that set us into a real specific state of consciousness we walked into the circle and immediately fell silent because it's got its own kind of energy going there. I don't know, again, what it's doing, but there's some earth energies happening that we don't understand because uh, it made all of us quiet immediately. Not not on purpose. We weren't told to be quiet. We just stopped speaking because it was just something sacred going on. And uh, we all found our spot and, and had moments. And everyone, I think, wept at one point or another. Um, people had profound experiences. I had like some sort of godlike source energy voice speaking to me at one point in my meditation. And I had a massive, I was crying too. And it was an incredible experience, but it, it really went back to not only um, this ohm that we did that created it, but there was a moment during this meditation. I just remember right now, or a good friend of mine, she's an art therapist um, and she's got her uh, PhD in art therapy. So she studies this to a really amazing degree and she started playing her ceremonial flute. She's got a beautiful wooden uh, indigenous flute from somewhere in the States. Um, and oh my God, this flute was, again, because it was designed by a culture that had different intentions, had very sacred and 
spiritual intentions behind this instrument and behind the music, I guarantee you that also added into this effect that I know when she started playing that, like it sent me off into another whole, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, realm of healing and, and expansion. So there's something going on there because we, that was an experience that I had. And I knew that that experience was a, that was a timeless human experience because I was in a rock circle enclosure, very, again, a much smaller version than Stonehenge, but just imagine that, right? So we're talking, this is old. This is, this is a very old tradition here. This is thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. And yet we did it in a crude fashion in a probably much more misunderstood way, but we did the best we could with, with what we had. And I had one of the most profound spiritual experiences of my life there. And so what did we do? We did an intentional own. We created sound vibration frequency and then we went into meditation in a sacred site with the sake, some, some special earth energies going on. And then a flute was added in. So music was added in and intention was added in. So all that combined created uh, a really amazing experience that I know our ancients would have experienced. Oh man. Like all the time. I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. It's just whenever. It's like a, that's a, that's a Friday night. <laughs> De- definitely. <laughs> I think Ohm is vastly underrated in the West. People know about it, but until you've done it, there's nothing else that combines breath work and intention and clearing of the mind while still being active. And just like it, everything that you all hope for when you're doing yoga, you know, to prepare for meditation, which is, I've been told how it's supposed to be done. Okay. Takes yeah. place when you sing the Ohm. And mm you don't have to be like sitting still. It's kind of nice if you're in a holy place, but you can sing the ohm in the car and have the same kind of beneficial effects that are appropriate for the car that you'd get if you were singing the ohm with Chris in the circle, you know, of, of stones. And um, it's, it's just such a fantastic thing, highly underrated. I, I first um, heard somebody explain it. I think Joe Campbell is who I listened to the very first time that somebody really explained ohm to me. And it's, it's a great touchstone. It, wherever you are, you know, to be able to sing, sing with your family, sing with your significant other, whatever it is, it's got, it's the, what is it? The sound of all the vowels are in Om, right? Oh, I, om. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I did that right, I don't know, but that's the idea. And it's all the sounds we can make in one note, right? Just the sound of creation, opening. the sound of creation, the sound of creation, which is interesting that it's every vowel we can make is, that comprises and creates the sound of creation like that's is it is it coincidence that those are the vowels we have you know the only vowels i don't know he shoots he scores (laughs) 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 i did it (laughs) but right i don't know know, right it's interesting i wish we could make the ohm like nobody sampled it yet there must be a a keyboard somewhere right i would love to be able to play like the piano with all the notes tuned to ohm (laughs) that would be actually that'd be a really cool idea for an electronic dance song i might have to work on there bill thanks for the inspiration there (laughs) you know i was just in a uh incense i was at a store that's selling uh, incense it was an indian run store and i could see on the wall this like um, oh, I'm blanking on the name. I just asked the gentleman too. Damn, but it's it was like a sitar, but a much smaller version of sitar. Okay, and you can see how f- very intricately tuned these instruments are. You have these larger bass strings that go all the way down the neck, and those are tuned, I think, four or five at the end there. And then you had like six other strings that were tuned kind of in the middle of the guitar, 
sort of how like you know there's a band the banjo has like one string yeah that one and that, that one that outlier well it wasn't quite like that there's like six others on this instrument so it's kind of like a sort of like a, a modified banjo sitar or sorry um sitar <laughs> thing going on there and i didn't i didn't it looked like an antique i didn't want to play it or anything because i'd probably break it but uh i mean you look at those instruments and the overtones that those would create there's no wonder that, especially with Indian music, like why when the Beatles went to India, like they immediately <laughs> became right. mystical people. They immediately yeah. started, you know, uh, studying transcendental meditation. Um, you know, the song Dear Prudence and that whole album was written when they were studying transcendental meditation and Prudence was one of their yoga instructors, apparently. Yeah. And so like, you know, you can kind of, when I look at the instruments of, of that culture in particular, and it's, they're not the only ones. There's many other cultures like this, but I just think of that and like the, the, the way those instruments are created to create those overtones and those very etheric mystical sort of sounds. It's, I, I keep like blanking on the right words to use for this, but it literally alters your state of consciousness when you listen to that. Um, and I was listening to a mantra every day last week, the, the Lakshmi uh, mantra for uh, financial abundance. And so I was listening to this every day in the morning during my meditation for about 20 minutes and singing along with it for about half of that time. And then just listening to it and the background classic kind of sort of, you could call it psychedelic Indian spiritual sound, which is that I forget the name of the instrument bill, like chime in if you remember, but it's not a sitar it's but it's very very popular it's always used it's kind of a drone sound you know, the the bowed sort of um As if it's, not, it's not a didgeridoo it's higher it's much it's higher but it has a low kind of quality and these high textures too and it's it's if you heard it you'd understand and it, you'd, yeah. you'd recognize it immediately everyone hears it it's the beginning of several of those beatles songs you know in their in their psychedelic times and so what is it with that you know how did they know how to create that? You know, I don't think I could think of how, like how let's just go build a psychedelic instrument. What does that mean? Like, how do you, how did they know how to create that? So yeah. specifically, right? Like that's such a. And what pitch do you pick? I mean, there's when you've got one string, you know, you're sitting there with a string and a bow, what, what string do you choose or what tone do you choose? What timbre do you use for it? You know, you know getting them, you're right. It's there and everything. When you listen to in Indian music, that that drone is there. Always, yeah. And um, it's always, once you get over yourself and you, you decide that you can listen to it, right? There's that whole, the cultural breakthrough you have to make. But once you do that, all of a sudden you're in the place and you're like, whoa, okay. There's something here, right? There's some meaning in this that's more obvious than just a pedal tone. And so funny you say that, Bill, because I remember as a teenager hearing some form of Indian instrument in any song, and I and I immediately, and I'll fully admit it, I would immediately kind of like, ah, I'm less interested now, you know. <laughs> That's just how I was as a teenager. I was more interested. Right. In rock, I mean, we all are, wanted, right? One of my rock and roll. I wanted whatever I was wanting at that time, right? And now, after my spiritual journey and everything like that, I hear Indian music and I'm like, oh, turn it up. <laughs> like, give me the good stuff, man. <laughs> like, I hear that instrument. I get so excited and intrigued and I've done a complete 180 where now I'm like, if I hear that, I'm like, oh, yeah, crank that up. Let's, let's get some good vibes going here. <laughs> One of the tough things about music is when you come, you bring all of your preconceptions to it. And you're just missing out. 
you know? And all that the music is really asking is listen to me on my own terms, right? Yeah. And, and when you do that, everything changes. But it is a discipline. Like for me to listen to modern classical music really takes effort because there's a lot of it that is really difficult to get into. And if you're a big fan of 12-tone and other stuff that's out there right now, no apologies, I'm not dissing on you or anything. It's just there's some barriers that are hard to cross in others. Mm-hmm. And that's really normal. Hey, at least you're showing up. If you want to make the effort and cross the barrier, you might find something you didn't know before. So, um, you know, give yourself a little pat on the back and... It's a musical experimentation. I think that's really important, you know, to to be able to keep that open mind, listening to new music that, you know, you may not think is going to be that entertaining for yourself, but see where it takes you and see where you got it, where you go with that music and, and just be open to that experience, be open to it, taking you to wherever it's meant to take you. And a lot of the times I find being a captive audience is usually the best in that situation, meaning you're maybe traveling somewhere and you experience local music and you're not really going to leave where you are at that moment. So you're kind of there and it's just going to happen. Those are typically the best, you know, cause you're, <laughs> you can't really tune out of that and you have to kind of be there to experiencing it. But uh, maybe uh, any, any final thoughts on, uh, on our historical slash kind of all over the place discussion. <laughs> oh man. Sometimes I wish it was just simpler. Let's go back to the stone ages, man without all this technology. <laughs> yep. I think uh, the best middle ground is to kind of create our own stone age <laughs> in the current age. <laughs> you know, well said, I like that. I mean, <laughs> we can, t- we can take the best and leave the rest. Let's do it. You know, I love, I love right now that you and me can talk. I'm in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and you are in San Diego, California, USA. Right. So yeah. That's pretty cool that we can do this. We've yet to meet in person. So I'm very grateful for technology for these situations. Um, there's a lot of great stuff with our current situation today. And there's beautiful things from the past that we really need to be integrating back into our, our day-to-day lives. So yeah, let's bring the Stone Age into the, the, the current age and fuse the best of both, you know? Yeah, we are. We're bringing it's although it's going to be called the stoned age. <laughs> it already is. <laughs> yeah, that's the the, the multi stoned age. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. Well, that's uh, it's always always a pleasure, Bill. I appreciate uh, these conversations as as always. They fill up my cup every week. Likewise, Chris. I don't know what I do with a Monday. We didn't have this this chat. It's it really launches the week. That's awesome. I'm really glad to meet you. It's great. Thank you for listening in on our conversation and for taking time to show your appreciation with a like, share, or subscribe. Discussions of music, healing, and consciousness is a practice of spontaneity, and we welcome your comments, ideas, and questions. There are ways to connect with us in the show notes, so let us hear from you. Until next time, this is Bill Protzman along with Chris Noble wishing you great musical health. Samara Huchaya. Thank you.